Welcome to Amit's Almanac, a podcast hosted by queer settlers navigating decolonial healing through herbal medicine and myth, queerness and magic, astrology and ancestral connection. My name is Rue McDonald. I use they, them pronouns. I'm here calling in from Lekwungen territory in so-called Victoria, British Columbia and Canada. And I am a songster, researcher, educator, and story weaver. I'm the founder of Queer Directions Learning Center, which is an online platform for ancestor connection and lineage healing. I'm Kenzie Kalik, she, her, a queer settler, witch, intuitive herbalist, justice advocate, sex posse educator, living in occupied Abenaki land known as Vermont. I also am a mother of a Scorpio and the steward of Wild Faith Wellness. And I'm Micah McDonald, uh, they, he, clinical herbalist, ecologist, and writer living in Abenaki Territory in Vermont. Welcome again to this conversation. How do we want to start out? Kenzie, you said you had pulled some tarot. Yeah, I pulled a tarot card, The Lovers, today. Talks about Gemini vibes and how it's kind of the the relationships of two sides of ourselves. And for me, what came up was that not only is this conversation about our interaction with the external world, but also the interaction with the internal world, which is a lot of the reflections that are coming up for us today as we're reflecting on what's already been communicated in the episode two podcast of decolonial practices. I'm also wearing some really cool leopard print leggings that I got. <laughs> and they just make me feel really um fierce yes. so i'm coming to the table with some fierce vibes that's awesome i love the lover's heart we really are in this time of like a gemini revolution i feel with like the level of connectivity and sharing of information that is now possible in, in, in ways that our ancestors could have never imagined and I, as I understand it, like we have right now our North Node in Gemini. And so um, something that I've been exploring uh, is what does the Gemini revolution look like? Um, and it really is this lover's card. It really is this connecting in with our um, what maybe people call their shadow self or their twin self and, and coming into greater um, coherency in relationship to our shadow self and into greater um, coherence as we understand, come to understand and come to be our own best inner lover. Miel just like wants to sit in my lap right now. It's so funny. She's such a big floppy love machine. Yeah, the really big dog that lives in my house. Well, I think it was while Micah was speaking, he came in with like his big eyes. He like, (laughs) he looked at me. And uh, I was like, no. (laughs) I know. And he would just like be so loud. (laughs) 
Yell is so loud. Big dogs are just loud. Yeah. <laughs> lots to say. Yeah. Last week during our recording, Neil started snore dreaming. So she was like <laughs> whimpering, snoring. I'm like, would you stop? You know, it's like really serious conversation. <laughs> 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 oh, animals, they bring such important Ugh. levity. So good. I would, I've been, sorry, this is a funny, this is just a random side note. I've been watching this show about this dog trainer and he's just like this like really confident kind of, He's just like a homie, right? He's just so confident. He's like just working with these dogs and he, all these dogs. He's like, you know, you just got to give them like lots of positive reinforcement. See that, see that motivation, see that love. They're right there for you. And I'm like, I'm like that dog. <laughs> I feel like, yep. like as a, like a white person, I'm like, oh I'm like that dog. A lot of positive God. reinforcement and love and compassion and I just, I'm acting in ways that I, like, can't even control. It's just how it's happening right now. Yes. You know, I'm outside of my window of tolerance. Yes. <laughs> I know, I've been, like, <laughs> I was, like, begging Mujib for, like, uh, some kind of reward and appreciation. And my Mujib was just like, God, you're such an appreciation whore right now. <laughs> I am. I'm such appreciation. How give it to me? You know, it's so funny. I'm like, yep. I get that. I'm a Libra. Like, I really need it. I need, you know, when I get into a conflict with somebody, they come back. My friend Otis knows me so well. He's like, what do you need? Do you need me to compliment you? I'll just like, I'll do one. Do you need me to fluff up your ego? And I'm like, yes. Yes, please. Yes, I yes, do. I do. <laughs> so good. Communicate your needs, you know? <laughs> I love that. Uh. Well, anyway, now that the dog jokes are out of the way, let's get into the discussion. This conversation is coming from a reflection of what we spent about two hours talking about already and us gathering again a week later to address pieces that felt really potent and maybe missing in certain respects uh, and something that has come up already in the little conversations right before we started is around our relationships to shame and our relationships to guilt. For me, listening back uh, about um, courage, the courage that comes with this work and the the layers of ourselves that are continually being revealed. So I really appreciate also Rue's mentioning of the shadow work being such a big part of this process. Um, and I think that shadow work gets a bad name, gets a bad rep, you know, and it can be really deeply, um, I mean, I'm also a kink, so I, I I don't know if y'all have heard of existential kink, but a lot of that work of, of finding pleasure in that shadow work. But I think that the courage that comes from that can be really rewarding and, and vital part of reconnecting with that life force. Absolutely. 
I I appreciate yeah that you brought up this topic of, of shame that comes up in these conversations. It really is like such something that I've come to understand it as is like a shame body that is like lives collectively in us as settlers, you know, who live out whiteness. And um, I think a big part of whiteness is shame, like Michael was talking about in the last episode. And something that came up for me was as I was speaking, you know, this tightness in my body that I was feeling that Kenzie was inviting us to feel into. And um, this uh, almost like this guarded where I felt like, you know, my chest was closing up. And that really is a shame reaction. Um, it's it's the protectiveness and and it it makes me want to investigate into the purpose of shame. Like what is the purpose of healthy shame? Well, it's to in, invite us to reflect on how to um, come back into the fold, right? There's been some sort of behavior that's brought us out of relationship. And shame is when it's healthy, it's it's a place that we can be and experience. And then there's a quick, quick um, adjustment. There's a quick redirection and we're brought back in, right? It's not, but what's happening as I've, I've experienced in in academic spaces as well as in activist spaces is that the shame happens and we're holding it in, as an individual. We're trying to hold a collective shame body as an individual. And it's just not possible. We really, really do need a collective approach to addressing this shame body. And 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 to have social um, structures, I guess, or political structures where, you know, we, we get triggered into shame and then, and then we're brought back in. And like, how are we creating cultures of care that facilitate that is something that I'm really curious about. Yeah, those are some great points. And I love what you say about the collective shame body, because... Yeah, settlers don't have structures in place to address the shame body. The only thing we have is a psychotherapist, but that, while super helpful in many regards, tends to individualize our struggles, to see them as isolated or unique and not integrated into some kind of larger systemic problem. Also, I feel like I've this last year, I've had to really look very hard at my shame and my guilt in general um, about all sorts of things as part of my kind of psycho-spiritual healing path. I've been moving pretty hard on this last uh, year. And one of the things that was clarified for me is that is the difference between shame and guilt. And that really was enlightening for me. And and. Of course, this is one definition. There's probably multiple definitions. But um, guilt, when it's healthy, is, oh, I recognize I've done a harmful thing and I, I feel responsible for that. And then you, you use guilt in order to make a correction so you don't do that thing again. And shame is more like, I am a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's my identity that I am bad in some way. And there's nothing I can do about that, right? It's, it feels permanent. 
And whereas guilt, if it's healthy, it's temporary. You move through it. And I realized over my life that uh, over the last year that I have been mixing the two of those things up and also, well, having both, a lot of shame and also guilt that never goes away that I just let like a dark cloud hang over my head like my whole life, you know, for years. And that's not that's not helpful for anybody. It's not helpful for the per- people I've harmed. And it's not helpful for me because I haven't moved through it. So part of my healing process has been to recognize the harm that's done and be like, okay, I'm going to change that thing. And and then I take power back. You know, it's like I have the ability to do something about that. I'm not going to repeat my mistakes. And the, And that I realized the guilt that I was holding on to was a fear that I would make that mistake again. And I desperately do not want to make that mistake again. And so I, it would be like a constant reminder in the back of my head, like, ooh, like that, that was really bad. Don't do that again. And then I'd be like, okay, great. I hear that. And they'd be like, yeah, but that was really bad. Don't do that again. And they'd be like, okay, I hear you. But then I, I would just repeat it over and over and over again until that was like the majority of the things that were going through my head. And so, so painful and so horrible. And um, in a culture that loves to place blame and shame on anybody in all sorts of situations, it's hard to avoid that. And what I've been taught is that there actually is no such thing as healthy shame because essentially it represents a negative delusion about one's permanent identity. But guilt can be healthy, and it's what can allow us to correct our mistakes and change in a positive direction. And and then, you know, with guilt and shame, it is so painful that one of the strategies to deal with that pain is to try to ignore it and to try to run away from it and to run away from the issues which I've also done. So um, I think for me, the the basic foundation of how to heal the shame thing has been for me to recognize, A, how to differentiate guilt from shame. B, when I recognize the guilt, um, imp- to re-empower myself to be able to make changes. That my fundamental nature is not determined by the bad things I've done, quote unquote bad, or harmful things I've done. Those are things that I have the opportunity to learn from and make a commitment to not repeat. And I don't have to constantly remind myself, I just have to practice a different way. And then see, look at the shame stories. That's been really helpful for me. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk a little about is the shame stories that we have inherited from a colonial culture. And that's like so deep and so heavy, we couldn't possibly talk about it all um, here. But I, I do want to talk about it a little bit because it's been really enlightening to me. And that when I recognize that some of those shame stories are not mine, they were passed down from my ancestors and they also lived those shame stories. I don't think we can be healthy people if we keep perpetuating those shame stories. 
their leftovers of the era of, of Christian colonialism. Shame is a weapon that Christian patriarchs used to oppress people and rob them of their dignity so that they could be more easily controlled. It's an absolutely soul-crushing, paralyzing delusion to believe one's fundamental nature is evil, as Christianity often espouses. And what's been so interesting for me is that since I was a kid, I've been very critical of anything Christian due to its deeply problematic history and dogma. But until now, I hadn't known how to stop carrying around the Christian shame in me and even projecting it onto others. It's a burden my ancestors have been laden with for generations and generations. And I want to be part of dismantling it so that it doesn't get passed on to Kenzie's kids and future generations. That's super potent. And I really appreciate the vulnerability that comes with what you are speaking to. And I was part of a really beautiful group that I've mentioned, King Yah's Birthing Beyond the Binary, which was an amazing course. And they're running another one if you're interested. But something that came up was the shame bubble bath and how the pattern of, um, and it's a privilege to be able to live in that bubble bath where getting in that bubble bath is real. You know, I've been there plenty of times. I make mistakes all the time. And it's really easy to steep there because it is a place of inaction and silence. And the work of the people with that privilege is to get the fuck out of the bubble bath and keep moving, dry off, keep the work happening. And I think that um, a lot of the shame comes up too with what Rue mentioned in our previous conversation around knowing your history and something that has come up is also to not only know the location that we are currently occupying as settlers, but also knowing what lands our grandparents were occupying and settled upon. And understanding the history can be really shame and guilt provoking And the answer to that for me has been to build relationship, to be in right relationship, to have the courage to be in a place of love with not only myself and my ancestors and forgiveness as an action, but also to reclaim relationship with peoples of that, of the, of these places in ways that are requested via mutual aid. Um, The people are on those lands. I think a lot of what Micah also mentioned was the eraser and that so much of the work I've done with working with children is teaching the parents to stop using past tense when speaking about indigenous people. Essentially that the indigenous peoples of those lands are there and that they're speaking and part of the work is to, to listen and to find out what they're, what they are currently saying and build that right relationship. I think a lot of the cancel culture that exists today too, um, feeds into that shame and that guilt. And a lot of the work of that is the courage, but also the loyalty to continue to do the work that it is. And this is something that we wanted to address today too, around what are we doing this work for who are we doing this work 
for? Is this collective liberation? Is this part of the liberation of not only ourselves, but our grandchildren and our ancestors? Is that allowed? Are we allowed to do this because it's also for ourselves? Or do we have to do this in a way that's in a place of selflessness? And honestly, for me, white saviorism comes up when I pretend that it's not for me because I'm afraid or I'm in a place of shame around feeling a camaraderie in the work to change the colonization and the history of colonization that my ancestors are a part of perpetuating, that even I am a part of perpetuating. I have white privilege and I benefit from that system. And therefore, it takes action. And those, I identify love as an action and being a part of the change, forgiveness, and also just continuing to do the shadow work, even when it feels hard and using that courage to get out of that bubble bath and continue to walk the path. I, yeah, you raised some really important points because I think we need to ask ourselves when we're doing decolonial practices and, and participating in decolonization in any form, you know, why? Why are we motivated to do it? And the the kind of self-sacrificing, even self-harming, quote-unquote, um, stuff, that is part of the white savior complex, which is part of um, kind of colonial dogmas that we are inheriting. And it doesn't recognize that we are also colonized people. And for for me, I think the point of participating in decolonial practices and decolonization is that many people say this over and over again, like, our liberation is entangled. It's a really famous quote that you were essentially saying, Mike, and Lilla Watson of the Aboriginal community in what's known as Australia says, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Part of dismantling colonization is recognizing that we have to have solidarity. We have to have stronger solidarity because our, our, our liberation is entangled. So basically, this is not just for the benefit of one group. It is the benefit for all of us um, because this is a this is a collective oppression. Some are more harmed than others by it, but we're all harmed. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like a healing from whiteness and and decolonization that work that work is is going to benefit everyone. Um, and just to I don't know, to speak from my own experience, kind of tracking what it is. I need to work on. Um, I think one of the pieces of whiteness that I've wanted to address in myself is the inherited, like we both were talking about the inherited violence, the gender violence, the queer erasure of queerness of my lived experience, and then also in the experience of my lineages, um, really did inform this kind of 
um, existence resistance is what I've come to understand it as resistance to actually existing in the world. And um, this actually got quite triggered in me in when I was first learning about decolonization and, and continues to be a tension that I work through is when finding out that I, as a white person, benefit from the exploitation and dispossession and oppression of other people just inherently by existing, there's this, I got just so triggered, um, this existence resistance in me, all those symptoms actually became like bigger actually and harder to manage. And so I see that as, as a form of, of whiteness, of what maybe we would call now as like white fragility is the behaviors that are like the shutdown mode. Um, the, the choosing to be silent, choosing to try to make oneself even smaller and smaller as possible to take in less and less food to, you know, imagine not existing. And as an edge walker, that's something I'm, I, I dance with regularly. And so I just want to acknowledge for those who struggle with that, that is also part of the work is, is yeah, working with this shutdown mode, because there's a certain point in the conversation, perhaps, where the information that we're taking in is somehow beyond our, our window of tolerance. There's an experience of shutdown. And that's taught me a lot about how important it is for decolonial education uh, or education about decolonization needs to be trauma-informed in a big way. And it often isn't, <laughs> often is not. Um, and so that's something I've been working with and trying to come into a better relationship with my existence resistance and trying to have some like levity around it. I have a Capricorn mood, so I take all my emotions like so seriously. I need to learn to just, you know, Capricorn moon also has has a little mermaid tail. I need to go and go flap, flap, give myself a little smack in the face. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, the goat gets just like so down on itself and it's like, oh, Rue, like, that's not helpful. It's not helpful to me. You know, it's obviously because I'm, I'm practicing the shrinkage of myself and practicing this, um, trying to make myself smaller. It's really part of the work, part of my work of decolonization is um, accepting that, yes, I exist. Yes, I, I can take up space. It's okay for me to take up space. And also to honor that this existence resistance it comes from this really, really deep um, desire to be in solidarity with what has passed, um, in deep, deep solidarity with what has passed, what is gone because of genocide. And it's like this, it's, a, you know, very Piscean martyr kind of archetype story that I've been working with lately to as these things came back up for me during our most recent conversation. And I also wanna offer just a couple things to speak to what Kenzie and Micah were talking about. Like, yes, it is so helpful. And if like, for me, when I get into that shutdown mode, 
I'm looking for pathways out. I'm looking for like the spark in the dark. Like, where can I go? And what I would offer is to, yes, track your ancestors, track where they were. What I learned was that my ancestors were farmers and they were part of farming the clay in Ontario and around Glenarm area. And they were part of destroying, you know, huge areas of indigenous food systems. And so supporting the revitalization of indigenous food systems is now a key main tenant of my work um, and how I do redistribution uh, of wealth and resources. Um, another thing that I learned from Jeff Corntassel is that you can, another way you can kind of get some clues is look at the indigenous language where you're living or around where you're living and look at how they're defining white people how like what are the words that they're using and how are they describing like the embodied actions of white people um so you know there's so many different words for white settlers amongst indigenous nations and a lot of them are like fat stealers the people who steal the fat people who are hungry ghosts, the people who come out of nowhere, you know, that are rootless. So then we look at those definitions and we imagine, wow, what would, what would it look like for our society to not be stealing the fat, you know, not taking the excess, not benefiting off of exploitation? What does that look like in our actual on the ground? And how can we make that happen? How do we become not hungry ghosts? How do we find ways to feed ourselves in responsible ways and culturally resource ourselves in accountable ways? Those are some of the things that came up for me. I want to talk a little bit more about the shame because I think, yeah, for settlers, it's part of the picture of what to grapple with. And even in, even in like the wording that you used, Kenzie, that is a much gentler version than what I've heard and which is that like basically just get over your shame and get back on the horse and get back into battle you know and like that feels impossible when you are in the midst of it and so frightening especially if we're traumatized people and I think we want to recognize clearly that even if we do have white privilege we can still incur lots of trauma from an inherently traumatizing culture, which is colonization, like Euro-American colonization, Western colonization in general. It, you know, it's an extremely traumatizing worldview. And rarely can we get away with not incurring some kind of significant drama, especially for those of us who are in other um, oppressed demographics, like queers, um, other people of color, you know, Black folks, disabled folks, women, the poor, people who experience sexual violence, lots of uh, oppressed populations within this colonial world. So um, for me, I just want to recognize that, you know, that sometimes the trauma is a barrier to getting involved in decolonial work or, or basically any kind of political work because it, it can be really frightening takes a lot of energy and trauma takes a lot of energy to maintain and to just cope with and that's real you know and and i think part of what i'm coming to understand is that 
we really need to have compassion for all people. Like we said last time, compassion for me is the way out. Compassion for self and also for others, it's the antidote in a lot of ways. It, it, basically, the colonial mindset, because the colonial mindset is deeply anti-compassionate. <laughs> and it's hard because times are so desperate in terms of the consequences that colonization has uh, created that it feels like we don't have time to just like mess around and, and uh, be kind with each other's feelings. You know, like we need to get stuff done now. And it feels like when we ignore the trauma and when we bypass compassion, it everything takes longer. <laughs> Um, because people don't want to get on board. People can't get on board, even if they want to. They can't. You know, their their body shuts down or their mind shuts down because you can't force your way through trauma or shame. It has to be healed in order to move past it. Yeah, I, I, so part of my healing is to recognize that Western psychosis, the antidote to it is compassion in a lot of ways, and that is a big part of decolonial practices for me and the way to do that for me is to unlearn some of the shame stories and to to know where the shame stories came from and that's like what yeah western western culture western religions it's a fundamental principle of of colonial christianity and especially puritanism which took over this country in the beginning and and we still have not recovered from the puritan hangover in my opinion you know, Puritans love shame. It's a huge piece of their dogma was shame and used in order to control people, you know, and to encourage self-oppression. Um, we have to get over the, the Puritan hangover. And I see some of the, the Puritan um, shame blame game still going on in in all sorts of political conversations on every side of the spectrum. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's problematic because when we're shamed, when we're traumatized, we just shut down. We don't want to, we don't want to engage. And then it perpetuates the kind of internal colonial mindset. It's interesting. You mentioned the Western psychosis, because in my family, um, my immediate family, um, my spouse, Mujib, I guess it's just two of us. I was like, and my child, we talk about this, which we do, but um, we call white supremacy, white psychosis, and that it's a disease. And so is that um, Puritan mindset. And what I was going to bring up again, because I think it's just so this book has been so transformative is the book by Resma McKenna, my grandmother's hands, because it's specifically about intergenerational trauma. And he breaks the book into three sections, uh, white trauma, intergenerational trauma from the white perspective, from the black, particularly African-American perspective, and then from the police and how those are three different bodies. And he calls the black bodies, the bodies of culture, these three different bodies and systems of trauma. And that like Rue was mentioning, it's a somatic experience. Trauma is felt in the body, but it's also something that 
stuns the body into inaction like we spoke about. And I really appreciate, Micah, you speaking to the vulnerability around just how painful it is to hear, get back on your horse, because trauma needs to be addressed. Trauma needs to be looked at. And uh, it's a wound. So how do we address that? It's a relationship that we have to bring in that, that buoyancy, as Rue was speaking to, that play, that literally dancing. So much of also McKenna's book is about the practice, that the work is a practice. When we feel first recognizing, when are we triggered? What are the things that we notice in our bodies? What are the things that come out of our mouths or doesn't? And then what are the practices we do to navigate those triggered places? And that I think that I also want to take responsibility for shaming other people. I think that that's something that I do as a trauma mechanism, but I think it's also a place of ego that I'm more woke than other people, or I am somehow not those white people. And that's something that I've really been intentionally working on is that compassion piece. And also not coming from a place of scarcity in that there is a place at the table for everyone. And that my place, I, I tend to be more of the talker. It's interesting because Rue is speaking to becoming smaller and smaller. I think I become louder. I get more, um, I poke the bear. When I see that there's a conflict or there's some kind of um, perpetuation of white supremacy or even just shame and triggered people not wanting to take responsibility because of fear, I am a pusher and that often pushes people back into their trauma places. And it's really counter movement, actually. And so a lot of my work is that play and that dance that I spoke about before. The paradox is the truth. Sometimes sometimes we step in, sometimes we speak more out and sometimes we need to step back and sometimes we need to take up less space. And a lot of that is coming from understanding our own places of trauma and trigger and then navigating from there. How do we act from love as opposed to fear? I really appreciate you saying those things, Kenzie. It's so honest. It's so, yeah, I I really appreciate your vulnerability about that because that has been something that's come up in the past and um, it has driven me away, you know? Um, and when you were saying these things, it reminded me of chickadees. Um, for some reason in one of my early ecology classes in college, um, my professor brought a tape recorder of chaotic bird sounds, like some, some kind of kerfuffle was going on. So he put it in the forest. He asked everybody to be quiet and he put the, he turned the tape recorder on and who comes is chickadees. They're like, what is going on here? We want a part of the action. We want a part of the gossip. We're here to tell everybody about this thing, right? That's the chickadee nature. Um, (laughs) And so I don't know. I wonder if you are vibing with the chickadees about that. So hard. I love the drama. Oh, I love 
drama it's so (laughs) juicy and terrible and but they're gonna be good drama too you know it's good to it's good to be kerfluffled and be flustered and tell all your friends but then yeah yes I vibe with the jiggity yeah (laughs) (laughs) yep terms of uh, learning about our ancestors and working with ancestral culture in order to not be a hungry ghost anymore, I think it's not just about reclaiming, um, you know, pre-colonial spiritualities or pre-colonial European paradigms, but, um, or even non-European paradigms, wherever your ancestors came from, but also to understand that essentially all of our European ancestors have history of being colonized. And so we feel we still have that in our bodies, right? And one of the things we talked about last time is those who have experienced trauma and have not processed it are very likely to perpetuate that trauma onto other people. So I think for me, what's been part of my process is to learn about my ancestors confrontations with the colonizer, whoever that was. For Ireland, it's been um, the Normans and the English. And for uh, Britain itself, it's been the Romans um, and the Anglo-Saxons and and so on and so on for all the nations. So using that experience, that knowledge of their experience as solidarity with indigenous peoples who are currently being colonized. That's something I'm interested in exploring a little bit more and learning more about what did their struggle look like historically and um, what were those fights to protect the land that they loved and how were they defeated and after after they were defeated, you know, what practices were were done to them. Um, And that's why... Um, learning about my Irish heritage is really informative about this whole process of colonization of North America is, um, I mean, beginning in the 12th century um, with the Norman invasion in Ireland and, and continuing until Irish independence in the 20th century, those practices that were used by the Normans and the English were very similar to the practices used by American colonists on indigenous North Americans including, you know, prohibiting people from speaking their language and forcing them into um, state schools and, um, you know, uh, prohibiting certain cultural practices like dancing and music and gatherings, uh, famine, 
outright murder and genocide. Like all the stuff that we experience on the North American continent was done there. Um, and that allows us to um, ha- have a deeper connection through that through that shared and similar pain. And in fact, a really good paper I just read on this was a paper called Decolonizing the Irish by Aidan Alderson, who is a scholar of Mi'kmaq and Irish heritage. And they talk about how the Irish have a very fresh experience of that colonization in in Ireland. And the Irish diaspora, therefore, have kind of a very potent way to identify and, and empathize with indigenous colonialism here. However, we haven't really taken advantage of that. There hasn't been a lot of solidarity. Um, and there's kind of been two situations that have raised that connection even more that I've learned about. And one of them is that in the Irish famine of 1847, the Choctaw Nation sent the equivalent of $5,000 to Middleton in County Cork, Ireland, where people were starving to death as a result of English colonization. It saved hundreds of people's lives. And it's because the Choctaw understood what it felt like to be a colonized people. They had that shared experience of colonialism. And the Choctaw at that point had only recently been forced to march on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. And since the 1990s, the Irish and Choctaw have developed a relationship where Choctaw students receive scholarships to study in Ireland, and many Irish presidents have visited the Choctaw Nation. In 2020, Ireland sent aid to the Navajo and Hopi nations who were severely impacted by the coronavirus due to their continued colonization. And it was said that that donation was sent in honor of the generosity that the Choctaw Nation showed to the Irish. And then the other the other instance has been that last year in the uh, lacrosse world games, the Haudenosaunee, because they were not recognized internationally as a sovereign nation, they were excluded from the lacrosse world games, which is basically an outrage because uh, Eastern native peoples invented lacrosse, right? So that's pretty fucked up. Um, but Ireland said, okay, well, we will pull out and you guys can step in. And that's what happened, you know? So that's legit solidarity. I do want to say I'm reading Caliban and the Witch right now, which um, has taken me years to get around to it. But gosh, I'm so grateful for this book. Because what it's helping me to understand is is the terror my European ancestors experienced in the Middle Ages in the transition to capitalism, which led to poverty, starvation, and massive uprisings. And it was essentially continuous war in the late Middle Ages and early modern period between the lower classes and the budding capitalist classes. By forcing the lower classes into poverty and stripping them of land connection, civil rights, and subsistence lifestyles, and then in the colonies became weapons of the state, just as you spoke to, Rue, in the last episode. It was an era of both capitalistic and religious terror, and this was also the time of the witch hunts. So looking at the actual history of this time period helps me to understand how my ancestors who arrived here were so traumatized and terrorized, and 
why they perpetuated that trauma onto the indigenous peoples here. And it doesn't excuse it, of course, but it does help me to understand what still needs to be healed. I think it's important to recognize the history because none of us should be under the delusion that colonialism or capitalism benefits anybody in the long run. We're all harmed by it because it's an inhuman system. Makes me think of what Micah and I, we had a conversation even before uh, we recorded the first episode, there was just like all this fear and like, where is this coming from? Is fear around like our voices being heard? And um, I remember listening to a really great SoundCloud um, conversation about Caliban and the Witch, about the disenchantment of the of the world. So disconnecting Indigenous people from their Indigenous land-based cosmologies, um, a lot of the motivation for that was capitalism. And it involved the um, public shaming and and violence against largely women and and perhaps people who were gender fluid or gender queer um, who practiced magic or people who were healers, people who knew the land, who had connection to the land. These were the people that were targeted. Um, and so and like for the purpose of accumulating people from the land to break that connection, to create a sense of fear of, to, of connecting to the land. And like we talked about in the last episode, there was like mass oppression of people from and separating people from being spiritual on the land. And that was a really big part of how colonization really impacted our spiritual moorings as as people and it's really helpful to understand the history to understand the the nature of how whiteness is embodied and how it shows up in order to find those you know those those calcification points of of shame those calcification points and as like a tool of understanding how to undo it in our in our in our communities um, and what I came back to was that I wanted to speak to how scary it is to be a spiritual like witch <laughs> and having your voice heard. Part of the work uh, for me is to is to be vocally a spiritually connected person who's um, you know speaking from that position um, is part of reclaiming cultural reclamation as part of healing and part of yeah re-grounding myself in ancestral practices really important and and undoes some of the harm like I was talking about some of these calcification points of of the traumas that exist in my lineage I very much identify as a witch and really vibe with that I also think of what kept coming up and now I'm going to read it because it does apply over and over again is Octavia Butler's quote, all that you touch, you change, all that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. And I think that that comes up in a way where the settlers do have a history of colonization and violence and that that is a big piece of what's perpetuating our own forms of 
utilizing white privilege in a way that perpetuates violence and that we can change that by connecting with our spirit and seeing that collective liberation and being active in making the change happen. I also want to speak to what you mentioned, Rue, about reenchantment. And that's, for me, a critical piece of the puzzle because the colonial mindset is enabled by disenchantment in that we see human, like Western human beings, as the only beings that have consciousness and, and spiritual value. And sometimes not even that in certain modern Western ideologies, which are profoundly disenchanted and materialistic. But in an enchanted world, everything is conscious and everything is sacred. And I don't see any way that capitalism can operate in that kind of worldview. I don't see how white supremacy can be as strong in that kind of worldview because there isn't any hierarchy of consciousness or value in in that kind of enchanted worldview. So that is something I am wanting to participate in more deeply. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, both of you. This is I could just notice that my body was way calmer during this conversation. And it was I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to come back and like touch back in and and reflect with you both. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad we did this. And it's never ending. And I I am spellcasting that this conversation, I mean, the title of our podcast is about decolonial healing. So it will forever be part of the conversations moving forward. Thanks listeners for joining us for this very in-depth and juicy podcast on decolonial practices. Here's an invitation for you to find out where not only you currently occupy land that is of an indigenous territory, but also your grandparents. The resource is called Whose Lands, and we'll add it to the show notes. I want to throw a shout out to the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. It was originally started um, by the folks at Soulfire Farm, which is in New York. And it is an amazing organization started just, just a couple years ago and um, by really powerful people. Um, one of which Stephanie Morningstar is a, an amazing teacher and that that is a resource that I want for people to know about and connect to. Another book, if folks are interested in um, indigenous writers as well, um, the Sacred Instructions by Sherry Mitchell. And also I feel like the go-to that everyone already knows, unless you don't yet, is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer is also a really beautiful book that connects those pieces. We will be adding more resources to connect to um, if folks are interested in understanding more of what labor you can be involved with. Um, there's always mutual aid in communities. Um, the Abenaki community here in Vermont and Maine um, often um, throw shout outs of mutual aid for herbal support that we are part of here. And that's happening everywhere. So 
if if that labor and that spiritual path is feeling you're feeling called to that we'll be adding those resources are there other resources Rue and Micah you want to speak to yeah I'll just add to the resources below um, how to connect with uh, the different land defense initiatives that I know about in so-called British Columbia. The two that I want to highlight are um, Unistoten land defenders who are defending against the pipeline in northern BC and the uh, tiny house warriors who are building tiny houses in the pathway of pipeline that goes through Sequitmic territory. So simultaneously, both of these projects are simultaneously like re-territorializing, getting Indigenous families out on the land and supported in that, as well as defending. They're fighting for their lives. They're fighting for the water. Um, They're fighting for everyone's grandchildren uh, right now and could really, really use everyone's support. Awesome. I also wanted to mention that there is a pipeline battle going on right now in so-called Minnesota in Anishinaabe territory um, with the Line 3 Enbridge Tar Sands Pipeline. And um, it is currently being built and energy is really ramping up to uh, protect the land and the water and, and halt that pipeline. So um, you can check in on that at Honor the Earth um, organization, but it's honorearth.org. Um, and then California Kitchen an indigenous-led organization that does great education and advocacy and um, have even uh, done a couple of really great education programs for settlers um, called Understanding Settler Colonialism, which has been really helpful for me. It's run by California Kitchen, Payahupa Way Creations, Legendary Skies Enterprises, and other indigenous organizations and is facilitated by Kinzenta Joseph of Payahupa Way, Chris Hohug of Legendary Skies and Sierra Club, Patty Joseph and Thomas Joseph of California Kitchen, Marva Shi Hutasna Jones, Kisjante Joseph and Shannon Albers. I want to take a quick moment here to uh, acknowledge some of my mentors who have taught me a lot about this. Um, First of all, a lot of what I'm drawing on that's informing my my deep dives into my own culture is from first learning about what decolonization and anti-racism and all of this work comes from, the work of BIPOC folks. And particularly, I want to honor... Uh, mentor Robert Lovelace and uh, Slado and uh, Devi Messina. All these three have been really amazing um, teachers for me, as well as um, Muhammad Abdul and Richard Day. Um, and many, many, so many people have taught me so much. Um, so it's hard to think about and name every single person here but I just wanted to bring that up because I think part of decolonizing is acknowledging the lineages of our intellectual like what we're what we're bringing forth not only acknowledging our our ancestral lineages but our intellectual lineages I want to bring up the fact that it is impossible to do enough right this work is endless 
the violence is still happening and it's easy to be paralyzed by how fucked up the world is. And I would say it's analogous to relationship with spirit and God and whatever you call the universe that's beyond ourselves, that our relationship just continues to grow. And the more we reach out, the more that we put that labor in to be connected, the more we understand that relationship and the more we can do in terms of the work. So if you're at a place where the only thing you know how to do is give money, give your money. If you have the ability to actually show up, show up. But nothing should get in the way of the first step. The first step is a very powerful part of the process and giving self-love and self-respect for wherever we are in this moment. Thanks to all of us for speaking vulnerably and honestly and willing to lean on each other for that love and support as we process the work and be part of the healing. Yeah, and this conversation, I think, will just keep growing and becoming enriched as we go. Um, this is just the beginning. And, and like Kenzie said, de- decolonial healing and decolonization is, is this ever shifting horizon. And, you know, when we think we're there, it's actually like way out in the distance. And something that I think about a lot, I think when I first realized, whoa, there's a lot of pain here to deal with decolonial, like decolonizing myself is going to be huge. And I'm not actually going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to finish and my children will not be able to finish and their children will not be able to finish. Right. Like what we're starting is like what I realized when I like poked my head out and I was like, Whoa, I'm part of this giant tapestry of colonization. First of all, and it's so overwhelming, but what I find really comforting is the idea of we are starting the cultivation of the soil of, of, of culture, uh, cultural production and, and cultural change. And um, that this will be a process that lasts my lifetime and all the healing that I'm able to, to do in this lifetime is going to help the next generation have that to start from as a foundation and then they will you know it's all it's all this part of this project that is so big (laughs) and um so large that it's like unimaginable um and that's also kind of exciting to me because um just I work with kids too I work um with young ones and what they're starting with was like what I realized like a few years ago, you know, (laughs) they're working from here and they're going to get to, I'm, you know, by the time I'm old and gray, they're going to be talking circles around me about what decolonization is probably. And I'll be like, (laughs) great, (laughs) go keep growing. I love you both so much. Uh, <laughs> loving you both too very Aww, much. You too. Yeah. And an invitation for people to move their bodies after they hear this. Just, you know, whether you're a dancer or a walker or a tree climber or a swimmer or a deep breather, 
any anything to get those juices moving a little bit after this and yeah i'm just really feeling the blessings and the gratitude for you all and very excited to talk about queerness with you all so stoked (laughs) (laughs) yeah so prepare yourself for queerness coming Mm. up um uh i will see you all later i'm going to the woods peace out (laughs) peace (laughs) bye bye